You can turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. You all sat down, but actually we, we tend to stand up as we read Scripture. So if you're able, you can stand for the reading of God's Word. Again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. The Apostle Paul, writing to the early church in Thessalonica, writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven... And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of God. And you may be seated. Uh, So from this passage, I'll preach from the title, Death Defying Hope. In my strange little corner of the social media world, over the past couple of weeks, there has been a series of videos going around in which women ask their husbands or friends a pretty strange question. How often do you think about the Roman Empire? Weirdly, most of the men in these videos reply, about once a day. These surprising replies are then met with looks from the women ranging from shocked to confused to what is wrong with you. (laughs) Now, full disclosure, I I actually think about the Roman Empire pretty regularly as well. (laughs) But I thought it was because I'm a pastor who like has to know that era, but... Apparently, I'm actually just very average in that, in that way. Okay, so if you were to reveal something you find yourself thinking about surprisingly often, what would it be? Other ancient civilizations? Recipes you want to try? Vacations you want to take? What it would be like to have a football team who knows how to win games? Our daydreams reveal a fair bit about us. The the things that our minds drift to reveal something about our desires and our longings, our fears, our anxieties. And it seems like one of the places the Christians in Thessalonica found their minds wandering was to their Lord's return. As the first generation of Christians, they were uncertain about what would happen to those who died before Jesus came back to establish his reign on earth as it is in heaven. In these verses, Paul seemed to be responding to these questions by encouraging the Thessalonian Christians to be hopeful since death could not keep them from an eternity with God. How often do you think 
about eternity with God? How often do you daydream about eternity with God? As Val prayed, today we are wrapping up our series from the Apostles' Creed, the earliest statement of basic Christian belief, and we're ending with its final confession. We believe in life everlasting. Throughout history, Christians have spent considerable time considering their futures with God. Seasons of persecution, hardship, oppression were all cause for meditating on the fullness of life that was to come with their God. An eternal life that could not be robbed by temporary circumstances, no matter how dire. Now, of course, you don't have to be a Christian to understand how the promise of something good helps you live through the bad. But for those who place our faith in Jesus, the anticipation of life everlasting is not a survival strategy. Instead, the knowledge of life everlasting provides a hopeful posture towards all of life today as well as our future. Or to say it more simply... Hope inspired by eternity endures. Hope inspired by eternity endures. Let's go back to the Thessalonians question for just a minute. What what happens to those who died before Jesus has come back? They are asking about the parousia. Say parousia. Now, I'm probably mispronouncing that, and you can ask Val how to pronounce it correctly. She's our Greek expert. But, but the word here for Jesus' coming is the Greek word parousia, which has to do with appearing or being revealed. You see, the, the, the Jewish view of the heavens wasn't somewhere a long way away. It wasn't somewhere you need to get into a rocket ship and, and travel for thousands of years to get to. It wasn't a spatial understanding. It was a different dimension. It was the realm of God's perfectly expressed and righteous rule. So that when Jesus comes back, when Jesus is revealed, when the parousia happens, it's as though God is descending his throne from one dimension into a next to be greeted by his loyal subjects. So don't think about Jesus you know, traveling for, for, for light years. Don't think about Jesus coming down from one place to another. Think of Jesus being revealed. Are, are you with me? This is the parousia. And, 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 and the early Christians were, well, many of them thought that Jesus would be coming back soon, that the parousia would be happening very quickly after Jesus' ascension. But now time was passing and people were getting old and dying and there was some confusion here. Jesus is supposed to come back quickly, but people are dying. What's going to happen to those who have died? That's kind of the the existential angsty question that they were wrestling with. And Paul writes to respond to this. It's a strange question maybe to consider because... (laughs) It's been 2,000 years since that moment, and so we're not under the impression that Jesus was going to come back soon after he ascended. Who knows? We might be in the early days of Christian history right now, for all we know. We don't know. So the question maybe is a little bit odd to us. I wonder what our questions would be about Jesus' return. What are the things that we would want to ask about having to do with the parousia? When Jesus comes back to make all things new. But can we, can we be honest? <laughs> Do we have any questions? 
Like, do we, do we think about Jesus returning? Does the reality of Christ's return actually provoke wondering on our part? My, my, my own sense is that the, 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 the society that you and I have been formed by, the culture that we live in, actually it does a pretty good job of redirecting our attention away from Christ's return for a couple of reasons. Uh, we, we live in a kind of in a consumeristic society. Would that be a fair way to, to say it? Like we're being constantly marketed to, constantly sold things, constantly told that if we work harder, if we try harder, if we buy more, if we go into a little bit more debt, then we'll be able to, you know, live our best lives now. We'll be able to have the things that make our life worth living. We're surrounded by those messages. And if we're honest, a lot of us have succumbed to that. If, if you were to look at what we spend our money on, if we look at what we spend our time on, if we look at what we spend our energy and attention on, it's directed towards trying to secure the abundant life via our own strength, our own savvy, our own intelligence, our own wealth. The other thing that can distract us from the hope of heaven is that we live at a time when what's most important is what we can see with our eyes and hear with our ears and smell with our noses. What is testable? What is provable? We live in a scientific age. Thanks be to God for science. Amen. But that's not always been the case. Previous generations lived in more transcendent times when there was the expectation that God was just present, that God was engaged with God's universe. That's not the world that you and I inhabit. We inhabit a more imminent world where it's what we can see and what we can test and what we can prove that is most real and most true. And so for at least these two reasons, my hunch is that this generation of Christians thinks a whole lot less about Christ's return than many, many, many of our Christian ancestors. I'm sure there's exceptions to that. I'm not trying to put us all in the same category here, but I do think that is something we are up against. And because of this, we end up relying more on our own capacities. We, we, we end up thinking about how we're moving through this life, especially when things get hard and our, and our attentions and our hopes and our wonderings are not directed to a future that has been promised to us, but rather by what we can do under our own efforts and energy. So if that's you, if you are someone who rarely finds themselves anticipating Christ's return, praying for Christ's return, looking forward to Christ's return, ask yourself why. What's behind that? What's behind that disinterest, that indifference? Is it a unthinking commitment to consumerism's promises? Like, is that the way that you're living? Is it, is it a kind of uh, assumption that, that is what, it, what is most true in this world is what you can see, what you can touch, what you can prove, which makes, you know, anything other than that a, a little less meaningful somehow? What lies behind that indifference if that's true for you? Maybe you're not a Christian this morning, and, and so I would ask you to consider whether you have any hope that lies outside of yourself. When things are hard, when you come to an end of, of, end of yourself, is there any anchor in the future that is holding you up or is it all on your shoulders to be able to make it through? So, so, so the, the Thessalonian Christians are asking this question about, you know, what, what, what's going to happen to those who have died? And again, that maybe is not our question, but Paul's answer to that question, I think, is very, very relevant to all of us, even if that's not the question that we are 
asking. And Paul's answer to this question is that those who have died are now with Jesus, and they will be the first to rise and welcome Jesus at the parousia, at the, at the appearing, when Jesus returns and redeems and restores all things. Now, my translation, the translation that we read, twice talks about these people as those who have died. That's a bad translation, because the word is not died, the word is asleep. A better translation here would be Paul saying that that those who have fallen asleep, and he twice refers to them as not dead, but sleeping. So what's that all about? We don't really know. (laughs) It it ends up that scripture is actually pretty silent about this. Uh, Scripture says a lot more about, you know, what to anticipate when Jesus returns and restores all things and creation is renewed. Scripture is a little bit shy on details uh, about what happens after we die and are waiting for Christ's return. But there's a couple of things here. It's a couple of things. Uh, One, we are with Jesus. That's very clear. We're not just gone. We're not just floating out there somewhere. We are with Jesus. Jesus, in the presence of Jesus. Is there anywhere else you'd want to be (laughs) but with your creator? Another thing is that this is a temporary experience because there will come a moment when Jesus returns and makes all things new. And that's that's the kind of ultimate direction of our Christian hope. And what we can say absolutely definitively is that those who have died in Christ are not dead. Paul says, no, 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 no. They're asleep. They're with Jesus. And they will rise to meet Jesus. Paul assumes that because Jesus defeated death, death has been defeated for everybody who trusts in Jesus. So they can't die. So so, so the sleeping then, those who are sleeping in Christ, will wake at Jesus' return and be the first to welcome Jesus at his appearing, at his unveiling. And those who are still living in that moment, Paul says, will then follow those who are waking and join them, be reunited with them to welcome Jesus to his throne on earth. Okay, this is not a journalistic account of the future. If that's what you're looking for, you're going to be disappointed. Instead, I think what Paul is doing here is painting a vision of the implications of death's defeat. If you look into the future and death has actually been defeated, here's what it looks like. The people you thought were dead aren't dead. They're asleep. They're with Jesus. And they're going to be the first to welcome him back. And the rest of us are going to join them to welcome home our coming king. The goal, Paul's goal, is not to try to get us to understand the timing and the mechanics of Jesus' return. In the next chapter, Paul says, look, don't even try to do that because Jesus is coming like a thief in the night, so you're wasting your time. But this is a glimpse, this is a hint, this is a vision of the implications of death's defeat. Paul is meeting the anxieties of the Thessalonians with confidence that death has been vanquished and Jesus will return. It's almost as though Paul is saying to, to these Christians, wait, 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 wait. You thought that dying could separate you from your sister and brother in Christ? You, you thought you had lost them to death? No way. 
No, no, they're just resting with Jesus. Not only have they not been separated from Jesus, they are resting with Jesus and they will be the first to rise to greet him, to welcome him. Not only have you not lost them to death, you will be reunited with them to welcome Jesus home. The implications of death's defeat. Now, I I think the best part of this vision, again, glimpses, hints. The best part of this vision is the promise of our, our union with Christ. Our forever union with God. The ache and the longing that we have to be known by God, fully loved by God, in the presence of God, will be fulfilled in that moment when we welcome Jesus at his unveiling. That's the best part. It's also, let's be honest, a little bit abstract. Like, what exactly will that look like? What will that feel like? So, so, so here's a thing that I think can help us. It's to, it's to imagine being reunited with those who've fallen asleep. Like, 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 like think about a, 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 a friend, a parent, a grandparent, a child who has fallen asleep. And imagine your reunion with him, with her, as you welcome Jesus home. Like, like that, that's not speculative. Paul's clear about that. We will join them. We will be with them as we together welcome Jesus. So one of the ways to kind of prepare our hearts, to, to kind of get a little taste of how incredible it will be to be united for all of eternity with a God who created us, is to imagine, who are you thinking of right now? Your grandmother? Some of you are thinking of children? Of beloved friends? Seeing them again face to face and being reunited for all of eternity with them. And that is a taste of the experience of welcoming home your Savior. I think that's good, Brandy. I think that's really, really good. So we can allow the hope of heaven to break the confines of the kind of material here and now, which have boxed some of us in. We can allow the hope of heaven to free us from the false promises made by a consumeristic society. To pull the hope of heaven into our present circumstances, our present reality. Okay, we've been in this Apostles' Creed now for a couple of months. And I hope that one of the the messages that's become very clear is that when it comes to what Christians believe, it's always attached to how we live. That that as Christians, we don't don't just like hold beliefs that sit on the shelf. It's, It's that everything we believe is going to change how we live. That that that's just an, an assumption of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, right? So, okay, so what then will be some of the implications of the life everlasting? If, if we, with the Christians who've gone before us, believe that, that Jesus will return, that the, those who are asleep will join those who are living to welcome Jesus back as he has establishes his, his reign of righteousness and justice and mercy and grace and love for all of eternity. Okay, so what is, how does that change how we live today? 
right? And that's not just a question we're asking. Paul actually provides two, two implications, two so what's in this passage. So let's, let's end by looking at, at both of these. First implication has to do with grief, and the second one has to do with encouraging. So in verse 13, Paul says, um, I don't want you to be uninformed about what happens to those who die before Jesus returns. The word uninformed is actually ignorant. Paul said, I want you to be ignorant so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Notice what Paul does not say here. Paul does not say, uh, because we believe Jesus is coming back, we're not going to grieve. Paul does not say, look, I, I, I don't want you to be ignorant about these things because you need to be done with grief. He doesn't say that. Right? He assumes that Christians will grieve. And, 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 and of course, because we follow Jesus. And Jesus grieved. Jesus wept. Jesus wailed. Jesus is there in the garden in, in an experience of grief that, that is, is beyond our own capacity to imagine. So, so, of course, those who follow Jesus would anticipate that we, too, would experience grief in this life. There's a way in which Jesus' grief gives us permission to also be people who grieve. Amen? Jesus, the perfect human, grieved. To not grieve in a, in a, in a, in a broken world is a very unhealthy and detached way to live. None of that means grieving is easy. On um, Friday, our family watched uh, the, the new animated movie, Elemental. Anybody seen it? Elemental? And the main character uh, is Amber Lumen. I'm not going to give, I'm not going to spoil it because it's still pretty new. Uh, but Amber Lumen, young adult in, in the movie, she has a temper. Uh, she gets, can get very, very angry. And there's implications to that anger. And at one point, uh, Amber says to her, her new friend, she says, my dad says that my temper is me trying to tell myself something I'm not ready to hear. I was like, oh, that's deep. <laughs> and so I based my whole sermon around. No, I'm just <laughs> I kind of think that's how grief works, too. I think, I think our grief is telling us something we need to hear, something we need to know, something we need to attend to. The question is whether we are listening or not. And I think that one of the, the, the reasons that, that, that we don't listen to our grief is that we are afraid that we will be overwhelmed by it. If, if, I, if I actually admit that this relationship is over, I don't know what will happen to me. If I admit that this person who I have loved has so dramatically changed, I don't know what will happen to me. If I, if I acknowledge this unmet longing that has been with me as long as I can remember, I don't know what will happen to me. So we're afraid that we're going to be overwhelmed or overcome by grief, and so we don't listen to it. But the reason that Christians can grieve what is grievous isn't just because of Jesus' example, though that's a part of it. It's that Jesus himself has overcome every source of our grief. 
This is what Paul means when he says that we don't grieve as those without hope. The Thessalonians are saying, look, we've we've lost members of our faith family who we have done life with, who we've been persecuted with, who we loved. We've lost them to death. But Paul says, no, no, Jesus already overcame death. So death can't have them. So you can acknowledge your grief. Because that grief has been, the source of that grief has been overcome. Let me ask you... um, What is it that feels too terrible or too terminal for you to grieve? The answer to that question is the thing you're trying really hard not to think about right now. And and again, for some of us, the way we deal with that is we just, we keep our head down. We keep moving. We keep working. We keep striving. We keep busy. And, and we might think that we're doing okay, but unhealed pain always goes somewhere. You are just not strong enough to contain it. And you may be thinking that you're doing a good job containing it, but I promise you, if you went home today and asked the people who know you best, how am I doing at containing my pain? They would be able to tell you how it's It goes somewhere. But Jesus has something much better for us than just trying to contain our grief. The promise of life everlasting, the promise of Christ's return, the promise of a future when all that is wrong has been made right allows us to grieve the things we've pushed aside. Why? Because our grief cannot overwhelm our hope. Our grief cannot overcome our hope. Grief cannot consume people who've already been consumed by hope. If death is not the end of the story, then there is no circumstance that will be the end of your story. Death is still grievous. It is still a reminder of this world's brokenness. But Jesus tamed death from a devouring abyss from which there was no return to a restful reunion with your Savior. A foretaste of the day when death will be banished forever. So, if death is not the end of your story, then what circumstance is so terrible, so unjust, so evil as to end your story? You have been through some terrible, some unjust, some evil stuff. But the hope of Jesus' return is that you can grieve all of these honestly, authentically, in a manner which brings healing because you have a hope that cannot be snatched from you. Because you've been consumed by hope. This then leads to the second implication of life everlasting. And Zach, I know it's early, but would you mind hopping on the keys? Thank you. The second implication comes at the bottom of our passage in verse 18. After going through this teaching, Paul goes on to say, therefore, encourage one another with these words. 
Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, I'm going to walk onto some thin ice here for just a second for, for, for some of you. Without Jesus's return, the best you and I can offer each other is empathy. That was a thin ice right there. Why? Because empathy is, is actually really, really good. It's super important. I come alive when people are empathetic with me. So I'm not in any way downgrading, downplaying empathy. If anything, we need to be more empathetic in our relationships. Empathy says, I see you. I'm with you. Empathy can even say in some circumstances, look, I have been there or I am there. And some of you have had that experience of someone being empathetic with you in a very, very difficult moment. And you just feel your whole self kind of, oh, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. And, and when justice and healing and reconciliation are not guaranteed to us in this life, empathy is very, very powerful. Right? When we can't actually say, this thing is going to get fixed. This system is going to get fixed. This family is going to get fixed. This marriage is going to get fixed. When we can't always say that, empathy is powerful. Because I'm with you in that place. I see you in that place. I've been there with you. I might be there with you right now. The Thessalonians are likely suffering persecution together right now. So they can be empathetic with each other. They can go like, yeah, I know what it looks like to lose my job because of my faith. I know what that's like. I know what it's like to be on the outs with, with the extended family networks that are so important in, 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 in Greco-Roman society. I know what that's like. Right? So, so empathy is incredibly important. You've heard my big long caveat, right? No, no emails that Pastor David doesn't think empathy is important. But Paul is not urging empathy here. He is urging courage. He says, therefore, be courageous. Therefore, encourage each other. Therefore, give one another courage with these words. For the Thessalonians, courage was not found in their shared suffering. Empathy was found there, but not courage. Courage, the unique courage that Jesus gave to them came from not their shared experience, but their shared hope. Their shared hope. Their existence as a community was founded completely on the Jesus who died, raised to life, and would come again. The only reason that they were a community in the first place was because of their hope in Jesus. Like literally, the only reason they knew each other, worshipped together, served each other, cared for each other, watched out for each other, sacrificed for each other, was because of their hope in Jesus. It wasn't because they liked the same worship style. It wasn't because they liked the same kind of preaching. It wasn't any of those things. It was because they shared a hope in Jesus. This was their foundation. And because of their shared foundation rooted in hope, they could encourage each other. And so can we. So can we. We can give each other courage. We can offer empathy. Yes and amen. But we can also offer more than empathy. We can offer courage to each other. Courage that comes from hope. A hope that is to come because Christ has resurrected from the dead. I've shared 
this scene before, one of my favorite films, um, Ava DuVernay's retelling of the, you know, the struggle for voting rights in the, the, the movie Selma. And, uh, and there's a scene in this film where you can, just everything in the scene, it's just a, it's the lowest of the low. <laughs> like all hope is gone. Uh, Dr. King and Ralph, Ralph Abernathy are in a, in a jail cell together. And they've, they've been arrested for protesting. And it's like the middle of the night. And it's, it's very dark and shadowy in, in the scene. And, and Dr. King looks at, at Ralph Abernathy and he says, I'm tired. And you know that there's like, I'm tired. And there's, I'm tired. And this, this is the latter. Like levels and layers and layers and layers of exhaustion and defeat and depression and discouragement. I'm tired. You feel that, right? You feel that loss of hope. And, and, and after kind of listening and being empathetic, Ralph Abernathy starts quoting Jesus' words in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them looks at Dr. King, are you not much more valuable than they? And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to the span of your life? And, and he finishes quoting the scripture. He doesn't say anything else. He doesn't, he doesn't spiritualize the situation. It's just, that's all he says. There's a beat or two. And then Dr. King kind of lifts his head and he just says, yes, sir. And in the same way that I'm tired, kind of held a multitude of meanings within it, that, those two words, yes, sir. You could, you could feel something bubbling back up. You could feel the truth starting to penetrate the shadows again. You, you could feel the perspective of, if God is for us, who can be against us starting to bubble back in? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Paul commands the Thessalonians to give each other courage via the hope that is their birthright, a hope rooted in resurrection and return. So I want to suggest for us, New Community Covenant Church, that one of the characteristics of an enduringly hopeful community is that we will regularly give each other courage. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I bet there's a handful of us who need some courage today. All right, so what does that look like? What does that sound like? Well, maybe to somebody feeling insignificant, overlooked, unseen, it might sound like you coming to them and saying, don't forget, you are more than a conqueror through him who has loved us. Maybe there's someone in your life who is feeling completely defeated, loss after loss after loss after loss, and it's starting to get internalized. It's not just that I'm losing, it's that maybe I'm a... So maybe you say to them, look, if God... If God is for you, well, who can be against you then? To somebody feeling weary, tired, again, layer upon layer of exhaustion, depleted, you might say, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. To someone you love who is feeling anxious, 
worried, fearful. You may proclaim to them that the peace of God, which transcends all of their understanding, or you might not get it right now. You might not be able to articulate it right now, but the shalom of God, the the peace of God is right now guarding your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. To someone who is like desperate, desperate, not not spiritually desperate, emotionally desperate, like I don't know how I'm going to pay the rent desperate. Like student loans start coming back online desperate. We might say to that person with all kindness and humility, uh, my God and your God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To somebody who's, who's, who's feeling completely unloved, who, who's starting to wonder, have I ever actually been truly loved for me? To, to that person in that tender place, we might say, I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels or demons, neither the present or the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We get to do this for each other. We get to give one another courage because we have an enduring hope. We have more than a shared momentary experience. We have an enduring hope. And that hope breaks into our present moment in such a way that you can look your sister and brother in the eye and literally give them courage. We're going to We're going to close uh, here. Brandy's going to lead us in worship. As we worship, we're going to open up the altar this morning for you to come forward. This is your altar this morning. The cross, the floor, the space is for you this morning to come and to confess any place of hopelessness in your life. Any place of hopelessness in your life. I'm asking you to come with whatever measure of faith you have this morning that there is a God who actually wants to give you courage today. You're not just going through a routine, through a ritual. You're not just trying to talk yourself into something. That there is a God who is present and who wants to encourage you. Who sees the place of unhealed grief in your life. Who sees the place where you're paralyzed in fear. And in that place wants to speak courage into your life Literally before you walk out this door. I believe that. I do. So the altar is for you today. Because I know that there's some of us who need some courage today. Some courage to hope. Some of us need the perspective of life everlasting to change how we are dealing with our current circumstances. And so I'm prayerful that this gym will become a sanctuary for us. Where we can be an honest people where we can admit that we've got some unhealed grief that's literally taking us apart. Where we can admit that we, that, that, that we have tried to be strong enough to push our way through, competent enough to think our way through, happy enough to praise our way through, and it's left us exhausted. Can we confess this morning that lungs made to breathe the pure atmosphere of hope 
have had to get by for too long on the thin air of our own meager efforts. And that there's some hope to breathe today. I wonder if there's anyone here this morning who is ready to confess the need for a hopeful anchor outside of themselves today. Who is ready to receive the promise of life everlasting from the God who gave his life to make that promise a reality. Who will take the small bits of faith as you place all of it in his nail-pierced hands and resurrect new life in you. So that's the invitation this morning. I'm going to pray for us and Brandy and the team will lead us in worship. Our prayer folks are going to be on the outside of the room here. They would love to pray for you. You come to them and ask them to pray for you. But, but I'm, I'm hoping and praying that a whole bunch of you just come fill up this altar space. The Bible says that there's going to come a day when Jesus comes back, when every knee will what? Bow. We, we, we sung it right at the beginning. And, and then the song we sang said, said, so let's start practicing now. So, so I'm hopeful that right where you are in this space, there's a whole bunch of us bowing, kneeling today, confessing where we need hope where we need hope in our lives. Let folks pray for you. You come up here and, 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 and worship and pray. Cry out to God. Cry out to God this morning. Tell the truth about the hopeless places in your life, the places where you've worked really hard to just overlook and forget about and, and, and sweep under the rug. Cry out to God. I believe God wants to meet us in those hopeless places today and give us courage that comes from a hope that is our birthright in Christ Jesus. So let's pray. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 5 and 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Sisters and brothers, the invitation today is to abound in hope. Not to have just enough hope, not to just get by, to abound in hope. So come and get. Come open your heart. Come open yourself to the God who wants to give you courage through the promise of his hope. Spirit of the living God, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how you're going to continue to speak and to move in these few minutes. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So let me invite you to stand.